0: Thank you, well, it's good to be here. Um, Like Dave said, we actually met uh, when we were at North Central University. and he roomed with my brother Jake, my oldest brother. (laughs) Um, But I went to school there, then I graduated. Um, After I graduated from there, I worked on staff at a church for a few years, then went back and started working at North Central. And that's where my passion for kind of studying generational trends developed. Those of you who were in the last workshop kind of heard me talk about that, just why are young people coming to churches, staying at churches, leaving churches? So when I did my doctoral dissertation, I researched that, interviewed a bunch of them, wrote about that. But as I have been talking about this, studying this, what I've come to realize is uh, it's more than just behaviors. Um, There's more than, this is more than, I have a chapter in here about it's more than a generation gap. So a lot of people are like, well, all young people are the same and you know, it doesn't really matter. Uh, They'll they'll get over some of these issues in a few years or whatnot. But really what we're looking at right now is a cultural shift. So I want to talk about that a little bit. First of all, though, before I kind of get started, I'm just curious, are there any pressing questions you have or what brought you to this workshop? Anybody want to throw out? Yes. Yep, and you are seeing this probably everywhere, right? (laughs) Okay, University Town, what else? Why are you here? What brought you here? (laughs) Watching the evening news, that's a good one, yes. Yes, that's perfect and I mean these two topics tie together so well the intergenerational dynamics and kind of how we interact as well as then the cultural trends and how they um, work together so um, Let's go ahead and just look. If you can bear with me, I'm a nerd. So (laughs) bear with me for a minute on a mini, mini um, history lesson. But um, if you look at Western civilization, uh, and you go back 500 years, we had the European Renaissance, and the Great Reformation, which kind of propelled Western civilization out of the Dark Ages, right? We had the printing press, we had Martin Luther, um, all of these things that kind of revolutionized how the Western world worked. Well, historians say that Western uh, civilizations tend to undergo major cultural shifts every 200 years or so. So if you keep following Western civilization, civilization, about 200 years later, we had the Age of Enlightenment, and the Industrial Revolution, which again kind of revolutionized culturally how we viewed the world. Now, what was happening right around this time? That's significant to us in the room. (laughs) The Revolutionary War. America was founded during this period. So really, we were birthed out of the enlightenment and the industrial revolution. So everything that our culture which is a very young culture has known to date has been based out of this period. So we are now for the first time about 200 years later undergoing the first major cultural upheaval that we've known in our country's history, okay? Which makes this pretty significant. So, what happened in the 1990s postmodernism started to kind of percolate in Europe and then around 19 19- 50 to 1970, it really started to move into American higher education. By the 1970s, 1980s, it began to really unfold into our culture, okay? That's kind of the, the process that things fall. So what's significant is around 1980, what generation was being born? Millennials. So they are the first generation that has been completely brought up under this new mindset this new cultural mindset. So when we talk about this, and this is where the challenge for pastors and leaders in the church right now is huge. I believe we're facing one of the most challenging times that we faced in the American church because you're, you, are, you have two different cultures sitting in your pews. You have two different worldviews. I grew up on the mission field, so you know we had to go through cross-cultural communications and how do you convey the message in this culture more effectively? That's what you're dealing with in your church. Except every morning, you're not just every Sunday morning, you're not talking to one culture that's different than you. You're talking to two cultures. One of them that you really identify with, whichever one it might be, and the other one that's a very foreign, <laughs> foreign animal usually. Okay, so um, the main and the main. Um, Uh, Effects of this really are the deconstruction of truth. So, whereas we used to, you know, I'll get into this. Okay, so let me just read a couple of quick quotes here to kind of paint the picture. Dave Harvey, who is um, a historian, explained that the modern era centered on the Enlightenment project of the midnight 18th century. The idea was to use the accumulation of knowledge generated by many individuals working freely and creatively for the pursuit of human emancipation, the enrichment of daily life. Okay, lots of big words. The promise of scientific domination of nature included freedom from scarcity and want. So, this was a scientific kind of revolution where we're like, okay, with reason, knowledge, science, we can change the world. We can solve the problems. People are not going to be hungry. People are not going to be poor. People are not going to be uneducated. Like, we have, you know, it was that humanist mindset that we can fix all these problems. Well, about 200 years later, we realized that didn't really work out, <laughs> okay? Half the world still lives under $2 a day. People are still starving, hungry, all these things. So, what happens when you realize something doesn't work? You get rid of it, yes. And you swing to the other extreme, okay? So that's what's happening. So this is not, the the changing of world views is the discarding of something that was viewed as ineffective. Um, And that's part of uh, why sometimes we take it really personally when it's like, okay, well that's the way that we've always done it. You know? But other people are saying, well, it doesn't work. That can be really hard and emotional, okay? So, postmodern philosophies then, as they began to analyze this, applied theories of deconstruction to the world as a whole. So, whereas under modernism, it was create a structure, create an organization, build it, have a, you know, a hierarchy, all this stuff. We start at, and there's an absolute truth, which stems back to the Reformation, right? The word of God is absolute. It is the truth upon which we can build everything. And that ties in very nicely with this whole knowledge, right? We understand knowledge. If we just study the word, all the answers are there. Okay, so that's what the American church has been built on. Attacking the concepts of universal meaning that existed under modernism. So the beliefs in a timeless absolute truth collapse. Because what ends up happening is you're just deconstructing everything. Okay, so like in my doctoral program, I would just want to throw up some days, leaving, I'm like, you can't say everything is terrible. (laughs) Because that's what we would do. We just sit around and say, these political systems are terrible. These economic systems are terrible. These leadership philosophies don't work. And we just sit around and critique every element of everything that doesn't work and tear everything apart. And then you walk out extremely depressed and discouraged because why even try? which is part of the reason why we have high levels of depression, high levels of suicide, high levels of narcissistic personality disorder in younger generations right now. Okay, So because what you're doing is this philosophy just deconstructs everything. So there is no timeless absolute truth. Significant changes emerging from postmodernism are the values of all truths as absolute, or valid community is more important than individualism so rather than a personal quest for finding meaning or truth it's now you're finding meaning in the sense of your community okay that's where which is part goes back to why teamwork why collaboration all those things are so important and truth is determined in the context of specific communities so if this works right for my group of friends Or my family then that's what's right for us okay I I mean oh my goodness well you just hear it everywhere every family every family you know structure should be acceptable every you know anyways you guys know what I'm talking about so Peter Drucker indicated that this period we're now experiencing is but a transition so right now we're in the earthquake stage so everything is in upheaval and we and it will not be permanent but we don't know what's coming next so cultural shifts take a couple decades to fully kind of settle in and I believe I believe so strongly that this period of history is critical because where everything lands in the next 10 to 15 years is going to probably dictate a lot for the next 50, 100, 200 years. Okay, so as Christian leaders, we have got to be engaged with this. And often what happens is it's just overwhelming and we can just pull away and we kind of engage in our specific community of faith or belief. Right. Versus engaging in it. Um, So uh, what will emerge next? We cannot know. We can only hope and pray. Perhaps nothing beyond stoic resignation. (laughs) Perhaps a rebirth of traditional religion, which some people have said is happening, addressing itself to the needs and challenges of the person in the knowledge society. So what is this future going to look like? We don't really know. Okay. So here's kind of the frameworks um, that we're working with right now as the church. So you have your modern... Framework of truth, which many, many of your older generations and sometimes younger generations who have been brought up in a certain context or family adhere to a more modern framework of truth. And I do have these on my website, the PowerPoint slide. So if you want to go to my website, it's under the resources page at the bottom under recent events. You'll be able to download my PowerPoint. Um, But the modern framework of truth is confidence and reason to reveal truth, right? Yes, sir. um, it's leadingtomorrow.org, and there's not a good bullet uh, board up here. Uh, leadingtomorrow.org, um, and I think I'm out of cards. I also have a booth out in the exhibit hall with my, um, my business cards if you need one, okay? Um, the reliance on reason, okay, so think about apologetics. Ravi Zacharias, some of these people. You know, we've always approached the Truth Project from Focus on the Family. We've always approached apologetics and defending truth on logic and reason. If I can just have a better argument than you, well, I'm going to win. That is not necessarily working with people who are under, and you're not, your head at a university time. It doesn't matter if reason is not what you base your life on. So it doesn't matter how great of an argument, apologetic argument you have, it doesn't work. Um, it's structured and hierarchical, and this is something... So what we've done is we've now incorporated these ideas into the church. And this is the church that young adults are walking into with a completely different cultural worldview. So they walk into our church and they see structure and hierarchy. Well, if you want to do that program or you want to be mentored by someone, you need to go talk to the women's ministry director. Or you need to, well, you need to, that doesn't fit with our policy to have that type of ministry. Or we don't have funding for that in the budget. Okay? It's structure and hierarchy. I... I, I, I don't want to make a strong prediction, but I believe that the church in 20 years is going to look sh- very, very, very different than it does today. I would say to senior pastors, if you cannot pay your mortgage off in the next 10 years on your building, don't take it out, okay? Millennials are not going to pay that mortgage. So if you can't get boomers to pay for it before they're retired living on Social Security, don't do it, um, okay? Because structure and hierarchy is not – they don't want it. It's, it's got to be organic and open, Okay. Under the framework of truth, everything was about we're creating. So we create theologies. We create um, doctrinal statements. (laughs) We create statements of faith. We create these things, right? And we determine that this is what, well, the new mindset is deconstructing it. Well, I don't like that part of it. I talked about this in my last workshop. We shop around, right? I don't like that part of this doctrinal statement. I don't like that about that one. I don't like this here. And so I'm going to pick these three and that's what I'm going to have as my My statement of faith, my personal statement of faith, you know, that my friends and I adhere to because it's our community. Um, Objectivity: things are black and white versus subjectivity where it's gray. I had uh, this—I just had this one conversation that I always use when I explain this because it just sticks in my head. I was working at North Central, and I was on a faculty committee, and uh, there was probably like five or six faculty members and staff members and administrators in this committee, and we had a student representative. And so we're in this meeting, and a topic came up that was very controversial for a couple of people. And so these two professors are basically yelling at each other, you know. This is my point, and of course, they're professors, so they have opinions and ideas. And they're debating, you know, ardently, screaming across the table at each other. And I'm sitting there going, oh my goodness, we have a student in the room, guys. Like, calm it down, you know? So we, we get up and walk out, and I follow the student. And I'm like, how you doing? Are you okay? You just watched two of your Christian, golly, professors fighting? <laughs> um, and she was like that was so refreshing i was like what she's like they believed something so strongly they knew what they believed and they believed it so strongly they were willing to yell about it she's like my world is so gray i have no idea what i believe i had another student i remember she was one of our you know student most mature student leaders who was in all these leadership positions had been mentored by multiple people was her senior year and she went out and she did something just really Stupid, and um, as a result, we could have dismissed her from the school, you know. And so here she is in this prominent leadership position, and she comes into my office, and so you know, what do I do? And I was like, I just need to understand what was going on in your head, you know. So I said, here's here's the first step of our disciplinary process. I'm not going to kick you out of school. We're not going to have any disciplinary process or consequences. I just need you to first. Go home, come back in a week with a paper, write me a paper explaining your thought processes and why you made the decision that you made. I I just cannot fathom why you made this decision. She came back a week later, sobbing, just sobbing. I'm like, where's the paper? I can't write it. I'm like, why? I have no idea what I believe, why I believe it, who I am, or why I did what I did. (laughs) She's like, I just do whatever everybody else around me is doing defining truth within specific communities. This was a strong, godly, Christian young woman. Okay? But truth becomes relevant to your context regardless. So I mean, me as an exer who's very black and white could have just said, You're out of the school. Well she she did not mean to break the school policy. She wanted to honor and respect the people who were around her at the time that she made the decision. You know, and so what is happening is literally moral. I'm speaking at an ethics conference with several secular schools in a, in a couple months, so you can pray for me on this, because what, what is happening is we've sh- shifted the understanding of what is ethical. There's a different prioritization. Okay, so I grew up in Mexico, where everybody is known for being on Mexican time. Okay? So we don't show up on time. Well, it's not a time driven culture. It's an event driven culture. So if I'm getting ready, if I said I was going to meet you for a Bible study at 9 o'clock at your house, and my neighbor shows up, well, it is based on the full hospitality cultural mindset. Of Mexican culture. I need to offer her un panecito y un cafecito and find out how her you know nietos are doing and have a conversation because it's a relational culture. And so I have to honor that relationship, talk to her, engage in that relationship, and that's an event that I'm having. Coffee with my neighbor. Well I can predict that. Well if my neighbor doesn't leave until 9 30 then, well that event is done. I can now move to the next event on my schedule, okay? So what happens is, I, you know, Americans will often, or cold cold, cold culture mindsets will often criticize warm culture mindsets for being irresponsible, for being, you know, not very punctual, whatever. Well, it's not true, they just prioritize different things. Under their ethical code, a relationship with my neighbor is more important than showing up on time for a Bible study when I know you're still going to be there at 9.30. So, um, <laughs> so, it's a different way. So what's happening is the, the younger generations, I mean, literally millennials are defining truth and what is right differently. And often they're getting a really bad rap because we're saying, you're bad. You know, you're unethical. You broke the school's policy, so I'm dismissing you. Well, in reality you were trying to honor that relationship with the people that you were in who were doing something that was against the school's policy, okay? So the, at that point, we prioritize people over programs, which I talk about in my book and in the last workshop. So the relationships become more important at that point than following some policy that's irrelevant to me, okay? So it's not always bad. It's just a different definition of what's right, okay? the... Um, Modern framework of truth is, of course, the individual. Again, I am responsible before God for my life, for my salvation, for my repentance, all these things. Often there is a great sense of I'm responsible to the community to do what is in the best interest of the community, to honor them. And often, not always to do what's best for them, but to make them feel loved and accepted and respected, okay? So, um, again, postmodern, acceptance of self-determined, pluralistic views, reliance on experience. So, do I feel it? Doesn't matter how great your apologetic argument is, do I feel it? And if I'm not feeling it, it doesn't matter. I'm going to disconnect my brain and just go with the gut, you know? So... Here is where I believe that those of us who are spirit-led have an amazing, amazing opportunity. Because it is the Holy Spirit who leads and guides into all truth. It is the Holy Spirit who intervenes in people's lives and changes them. And I, I'll, I'll jump ahead of my slides because now I'm feeling my preach get on. So, <laughs> but, <laughs> um, in Hebrews 12, it talks about the shaking that there is a shaking that that is coming so that everything that can remain will remain, and those things that do not remain will be taken off. And I believe that God sends cultural shifts every 200 years or so to shake off of his church the things that really are not supposed to be there. Now what happens is the enemy knows that these shifts are coming, And so whereas God is trying to birth something new, behold, a new thing is coming, you know, a new thing is happening. The enemy tries to get in, he distorts. So I believe, and I also believe that every generation, God has wired them with the things that they need to propel his kingdom forward in that season. So God puts ideas and perspectives into millennials, Generation X, whatever. I mean, he instilled in boomers a drive to build organizations and missions networks, to evangelize the world, to get Bibles printed. I mean, look at all the things that boomers, God has used them to accomplish. And millennials acknowledge it. They say boomers work harder than us. They care more than us. We owe a lot to them. We're riding on their coattails. So that's the beautiful thing about millennials. They acknowledge it. So God uses those things in boomers, but now he's doing a new thing for a new generation. He's using boomers to instill things in millennials that they need, but the enemy is trying to distort what God has put in place. And so this is where, as leaders of millennials and Generation Z, we have to be very attuned to this. What is it that God's put in them that is valuable? Okay? So I believe a reliance on the Holy Spirit to lead and guide us in truth is something that is an asset that they bring to the church. And sometimes we need to allow allow that to be facilitated. We stick with this structure and hierarchy. At 10:05, the announcements will occur. At 10:10, the offering will be taken up. the, the worship shall be done at 10 you know, three zero. <laughs> Okay, I sometimes get completely stressed out when I have to do things in church services because I'm like looking at the clock. Well, oh, I said three too many words, you know. But we keep things so structured and hierarchical, and we don't always allow for the very thing that would allow millennials to experience what God has. And to, to then have this experience and once they have this, oh, I'm feeling it. I am feeling it. Okay, then it is the job of the older leaders to make sure that we're using this. Okay? But in a cross-cultural experience, what you uh, often have to do is you have to go to where people are. You can't stand on this mountaintop and scream to the other mountain, come down through the valley and there's a small bridge that you'll cross at the, you know, in the stream. That's what we do. We have to stand and shout at them to come over to where we are. You have to go down across the bridge over to the mountain and bring them with you, you know? So if we, we have to move towards some of this, not because all of this is right and good, but we have to meet people where they're at. And then when we meet them there, we have a responsibility to make sure that there's balance so that the things that are good from previous generations get passed on to the next generation, and the things that the enemy is distorting in the new generations get, shut down you know that the distortions get revealed for what they are um okay organic and open it's messy i mean you i'm sure you (laughs) see this okay we were talking about in the last workshop where you know you can put together the most beautiful high-tech presentation um with lights and music and it's scheduled and you have great promotional materials and everything and that will get that will get young people in but what's gonna keep them are the times when you take them to the coffee shop and just let them pour out their souls, okay? And it's messy, and it's not, um, and for leaders, one of the things that board members <laughs> and leaders need to understand is it's not measurable. So we can't report this, we had, an, well, because if you have an, attend- with a th- uh, uh, an event with a 1,000 people, well, that's very easy to get funding for. But I need a staff position Who's just going to network and sit at coffee shops and talk to people well that's not going to get funded very easily right but when you look at the results okay which of those two someone who's just planning big events and a thousand people are showing up but how many are there on sunday morning or in your discipleship group and following god versus someone who's taking young people out to coffee investing in their lives and going to their workplaces i can guarantee you which one's going to have more retention OK, so one of the things with the organic and open moving from the structured to hierarchical is that the leaders have to understand we have to have a different mindset. OK, it's not about budgets and numbers anymore. It's about relationships. And one of the things that's really hard, if you're in you, young adult ministry or women, men's ministry, that's hard about this is you can spend your whole day investing in people. But your your leader might be saying, well, you weren't in the office. Well, you didn't get your reports done. You didn't email. So it can be really hard if you're feeling like you're doing this type of ministry, which is why I wrote the book. <laughs> so you can give it to your leaders, okay? Um, so, um, because those are the types of ministries that we need. Any th- questions or comments on this before I move on? I just want to pause. I have a comment. Yeah. I actually was in the other Mm-hmm. See, yep. are just as frustrated as you are. Mm-hmm. And so I think I just th- I'm blown away by what you're saying. Mm-hmm. And a great thing that you can do is open your eyes and locate the ones who are like yes. come around. Yes. And then come alongside them. Yep. And just get an idea of how they're feeling about how they can reach their own yes it's, it's very difficult I mean, yes we know <laughs> yes so. and I, and i mean it's hard for you guys even sometimes it's harder because you feel, and I'm, I'm not having gone to the tolerance thing yet, but you feel this pressure to not offend anyone and to not judge anyone, okay? Whereas older generations sometimes are already viewed as judgmental and having their opinions, and so when they share them, it's not a surprise. But you, you're part of that culture, and so to break a cultural norm when you're part of the culture is it's disconcerting, you know? So okay, I need to get moving on. Any other questions on this slide before I move on? Yeah? Oh, are you sure? Okay, yeah. Yes. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Those are great points. Anybody else? I just have a simple question. Mm -hmm. When you write about this, you presented two ways of thinking. Do Mm -hmm. Do you address bridging
1: that gap? Mm -hmm. Yes, at the end. I will, a little bit,
0: if I can get there. Okay, So I I get very excited, and like I said, I could talk for hours and hours about this, so 45 minutes is really hard for me. So I'll try to keep moving here. Um, Okay, so here are just a few great quotes. You have your way, I have my way, as for the right way, the correct way, the only way, it does not exist, right? That sounds familiar? Nietzsche just laid the foundation for us. Truth is produced, not found. Mm. And here's something, oh, I don't have time to go into this in depth, but here's one thing I'll just um, comment on about this. What does this make us, if we're the producers of truth? I believe our country right now is living the highest form of idolatry possible. It is one thing when you bow down to, I mean, I was just reading Isaiah 44 this week, you know, and God criticizes people for bowing down to these idols that they make. Well, what about when you, when you make yourself the idol? I mean, I just, it's, I just get the chills thinking about it. I mean, what is coming to America? Lord, help us, okay? Um, no right or wrong answer exists when values are at stake. So when I talk to schools, I talk about this, okay? Because this is in the classrooms. This is in the textbooks. If you are a parent, a grandparent, read the textbooks. <laughs> read the homework, because they are teaching. I mean, this tolerance education is everywhere. I love these two, two quotes. They give me hope, okay? Tolerance is the virtue of a man without convictions. Amen. <laughs> okay, here's the thing about toleration, the doctrine of toleration, which is what my next book is going to be. I, I just am starting on it, so I'm very excited. But um, toleration, the thing is, is that it is not bad to understand and respect. Understanding and respect are good things. So the, the doctrine of toleration hooks you with that, of course you're supposed to understand and respect. That, I mean, we all can agree on that. But they require, the doctrine of toleration, as it's playing out in our society today, requires affirmation and acceptance. It requires it. That is not true tolerance. Tolerance is not affirming and accepting everything. Okay. And so this is where it gets so distorted and Christians get stuck because of course we want to be tolerant. We want to be understanding and respectful. But we're then required to affirm and accept everything. And that goes against our faith, okay? Truth has ceased to be a relationship between a statement and a reality, and it has become a judgment. Let me talk about this quickly. I believe, um, oh, I, was, I forgot about these slides. Um, Okay, just to give you a really quick snapshot, I'm going to skip a couple of these. Only 9% of all American adults today have a biblical worldview. A biblical worldview includes belief in absolute moral truth, Bible is accurate, salvation is by grace, Satan is real, Jesus lived a sinless life, God is all-knowing creator. Okay, I would say that's a pretty basic biblical view. Okay, there's not anything too controversial in there in my mind. Only 9% of American adults have that. Um, of Christians, one-third of all, or 34% believe that moral truth is absolute and unaffected by circumstances. Slightly less than half of born-again adults believe that absolute moral truth. This is how much it's permeating our society. So it's not outside the church walls. It's inside the church walls. Less than one-half of 1% of adults 18 to 23 have a biblical worldview. One half of one, that's why your job is so challenging. <laughs> okay, so when we come into these conversations, we don't have a common basis to start the conversation, right? So we have to start at a whole different place than where we started before. Okay, um, most, someone said that this is the most quoted scripture in America today. It used to be John 3 16, right? Okay, used to be John 3 16, no more, okay? Do not judge, her; you will be judged. And um, let me just go ahead really quick. This is just, I saw this just like last week, and I had to include it in my slide. This is a millennial believer who just posted this on her Facebook, and I, I copied it from her, because it just shows how this language plays out, okay? And I don't think what she's saying is necessarily wrong, but it shows how the language plays out. So a couple years ago, I I went through what I like to call a judgment boot camp, where I went through just about everything I'd ever judged anyone for, from big to little. It was extremely painful, but really good, because it purged me from the desire to ever judge anyone again for anything, ever. So while I have strong opinions about life and truth, it's possible to believe in truth and standards without judging someone else's heart. And I think this this represents the struggle for millennial christians okay because this this is just part of their language i mean she just uses judge 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 over and over here i mean 10 years ago five years ago you did not hear people using the word judge like that but this was just a facebook post and so but how do i how do i hold to life and truth and opinions about those things without being judgmental because that's term judgmental okay and one thing that i think is critical to laying the foundation is this verse, it says, do not judge or you'll be judged. Okay, for the same way you judge others, you will be judged with the measure you use. Okay, that's not where the verse stops. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own? Fair. Oh, that's right. Let's just move on. I'll have my plank. You have your speck. That's how we're going to live. That's what we say. <laughs> that's what it means. When we say do not judge, I'm going to live with my plank and you your speck and I'm not going to dress your speck because I have a plank. That's how we interpret it, right? So what we've got to teach young Christians who are struggling with this is the verse doesn't stop there, okay? It's you hypocrite. First, <laughs> here are your action steps. Take the plank out of your own li- uh, li- eye. We are called to a life of holiness based on truth, okay? And, and this is where, like you said, your point was great. I'm sorry, I don't know what your name is. Christy. Our, in front of you. Oh, I'm Sarah. Sarah. Your point, Sarah, like where are the millennials in your church who are involved and engaged? And how do you come alongside them and help them process through? Okay, how do we talk to your generation? How do we help you and how do we engage your peers? Okay, because it starts with God is intolerant of everything that is destructive to your life. There's a statement for you. Okay, God is intolerant of everything. The Bible is intolerant of everything that is destructive to your life. Yes, the Bible is intolerant. I want to title my next book, The Intolerant Gospel, but I don't know if my publisher is going to let me do that. <laughs> I don't know that it will sell. Um, but um, because I believe the scriptures are extremely intolerant and it's intolerant of those things that destroy us. Okay, And this is, this is the message that we need to give. Okay, So take the plank out of your own eye. How do we come along each other and have accountability and then see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye? So it doesn't mean that you don't address it. It just means that you're addressing your own life as you're addressing your neighbor's life, okay? So, um, of course, we have an intolerant gospel. I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. We hear this over and over and over in Scripture. So one of the things that we have to do as Christians in this season, we have to embrace the fact that we believe in intolerant truth. And what we have been doing sometimes is trying to navigate how do we relate to how do we relate to our society in the age of tolerance? The the season of the seeker-sensitive, seeker-sensitive church has come to an end. Okay? Let's start learning from places like China. Okay, places where the church is not popular. Because we are about—we are already experiencing—but we are entering a season of social persecution in America. So they're not going to take us into the streets and flog us because we're—we're not a bad country. <laughs> okay? They're not going to do those things. But there is a social persecution that's coming to the church in America, and in the next five to ten years. And what we need to do as as older Christians, we have got to equip those millennials. I call it the the um, the season of the remnant. We're right now in a season of a remnant. So where is the remnant of millennials, the Sarahs, who are in our churches who want to understand? And how do we give them, come alongside them? So we, we have to stop worrying about reaching the masses right now. Okay, We're going to reach the masses in a little while. But I, feel, I believe that there's a season right now that we're in where we have got to, it's, it's our 12 disciples season, Okay, where we invest, invest, invest into those millennials who are in our midst Help them understand this. Get them so grounded in truth. And this is where the leaders in the church have to reassess how we measure success. Okay? Because we need three or five or 12 young adults that we as a church are just pouring our guts into. They are so solid in truth that so when their peers are saying, you are a bigot, okay, you are a hypocrite, you are intolerant, you are a bad person, that they have the strength to stand. And so, because what's going to happen next, in the next season, I believe the mass season, the Peter on the preaching to the 3000 season that I'm excited about, is there's going to be a hunger for truth that's coming. Because when you have an entire generation that's so lost because there is no up and down, there's no right and wrong, like the hunger is going to grow. We're not at that point yet because it's still trendy. Okay, so in this season, we've got to invest in those that we're passing the baton to so that when the season of hunger comes, those 12 are ready to just spread it like wildfire, right? Take it to the world. I'm just getting the chills. (laughs) Okay, so, um, okay, and here's what I believe is happening. So here's the verse I was referencing. At that time, his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that are things that have been made. Okay, let me pause here because I haven't really talked about tradition. Um, A lot of times what happens when we're just overwhelmed is we retreat to the things that we know. Okay, so when we're overwhelmed with what's happening with society and culture, we go back to our specific communities of belief, and we we practice it's safe, it's comfortable, it's an escape. From the craziness that's happening out there. So we begin to hold tightly to traditions, to the way that we've done it, or to things that make us feel safe. Um, some traditions are essential. We need them, okay? Things that would be viewed as tradition. I mean, think about the, the, the communion that some people might view as a tradition. It is central to our faith, and there is a reason that it is central to our faith. So we need to hold to that, and we need to then teach the next generation why that is central to our faith. Worship being 15 and a half minutes long is not central to our faith, (laughs) okay? Singing a certain number of hymnals is not central to our faith, okay? Now, it represents, the practice of worship represents something that is central to our faith. But the method and how we do it is not. And what this is, this shaking, it is that the things that have been made, that we've just created, that have served us as a vessel a wineskin for a certain season and have been effective in that season, but maybe are not the new wineskin, those things that have been made by us for a reason, the traditions that are just culture, need to be shaken off. So that the things that cannot be shaken the things that we have to hold to, may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. I mean, in some ways, it makes me so excited that this is happening. Not because I feel, my heart breaks for the people that I feel like have no sense of direction or truth. That is heartbreaking. But I I heard a a pastor from China who said, don't pray for us to be free from our suffering. We don't want to be like you. And I'm like, Dear God, I want to be like them. I want to be like them where my faith is so on fire that it does not matter. It does not matter. Because I serve a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Culture, throw at us what you will. Government, throw at us what you will. Economy, throw at us what you will. My dad taught me when I was a little girl, he's like, honey, if, they ever, if you're being persecuted and they won't let you fill up your gas tank, you just pray that that gas tank never runs dry. <laughs> and you just travel around preaching, girl. I'm like, amen, daddy. <laughs> so um, I just, if they ever tell me I can't, you know do things well then manna will come from heaven the oil doesn't run out of the jar i mean hello that's how i want to live you know okay i'll move on on my slides so (laughs) tolerance to tradition um i just recommend romans 14 and 15. read it because it talks in there about um it talks in there about uh you know if a brother if it causes a brother to stumble for you to do something And it's not, it's not a point, uh, where I have my Bible, I left it in my bag. Just read it. It's good. Okay, we as mature Christians and leaders, we need to look at what are the things that are non-negotiable, and where are the places where we can meet people and negotiate on some things, okay? Because the mature Christians are the ones who need to bear with the failings of the weak, not to please ourselves, not to have our churches and our programs look the way we want them to look, but to design um, our lives around a way that's going to be effective for um, empowering the next generation. Okay, here are some practical strategies for ministry you're asking me about. <clears throat> Answer the question, why? This is probably the most important thing. Why do we do it this way? Why do we have that program? Why is our church service 45 minutes long? <laughs> why, um, you know, why is ministry this way? Why does the church not uh, want to ordain homosexuals? Answer those questions. Why do we require 10% tithe? Why are we putting all of our money into getting new carpet and chairs when our community is, there's people in our community who don't have food? Answer those questions. And often what happens is people ask those questions and we respond defensively. Okay. And what we need to do is just listen. Do not respond defensively. The best thing you can do is just say, thank you for sharing that with me. You know, here is an answer. What we will find, this and doing that will show us what are the things that can be shaken and what are the things that are not? Because when you sincerely and truthfully answer questions, you'll realize, why are we getting new pews and carpet and not feeding the people in our community who are hungry? Why are we doing that? Let's, let's talk about that. you know, Or why are we not ordaining homosexuals? That is a great question. Let's talk about that, okay? So when we start to answer those, we'll see these are things that we can negotiate on. These are things that we're not gonna negotiate on, okay? The best, people are always asking me, what kind of curriculum or book do you recommend? I stole this from someone. They're like, let your life be the mentoring (laughs) curriculum. It's true, and I talk about it in the last workshop. Pull young people into your life wherever you can. Invite them onto your committees, have them over for dinner, I mean, I have young people, like I have, two, I have two-year-old twin girls, they're identical girls, they're so cute. Anyways, um, but what I will often do is just say, meet me at the park. I don't have a lot of spare time in my life right now, I have two two-year-olds. <laughs> okay, But if you, I invite people to just come hang out with me at the park, and we sit on the bench and talk while they crawl on the swing set. And it just come into my life, and then these young people get to watch me parent. Two in the mind stage. Mind, 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 mind. Everything belongs to two people at the same time. So, watch me as I navigate that. Okay, and then I'll show you all the places where I'm failing, and you can learn and do it differently when you have twins. Um, but anyway, so let your life be the mentoring curriculum. Bring people into your life. Engage in reverse mentoring. Learn from people who are younger as well as older. I mean, I almost take notes when I'm talking to young people because I'm like, you give me so much insight into a worldview that I do not understand. I need to be able to see the world through your eyes. So just talk and listen to young people, your grandkids, your nieces, your nephews, your neighbors, um, and even your friends, you know? And hear how are they seeing the world and, and seek to understand that? Ask them questions. Never start a conversation by telling people things. Start the Have your go-to, if you're you know just one of those people that hates initiating conversation, have your go-to three or four questions that are open-ended, that will bring information out of people. And then, like I said, identify what is tradition, hold to what is truth, negotiate on tradition, but hold to truth. I'm going to go ahead and pass this around. If you're interested in my email newsletter, drop your business card or the sheet in, and then I'm going to do a drawing here for a couple of books. Any questions while we, uh, while we wrap up? or thoughts, or things that you're seeing that are working or not working in your church. My daughter was home on uh, spring break. She was a professor College mm-hmm. and She had a professor that had developed a curriculum on homosexuality. Really? And at the last minute, the president shut it off and she said, I so wish she hadn't done that. She said, because I don't know what yeah. i Yep, I don't yep. understand because we're told to love the person mm-hmm. and not the sinner and that is not what she was taught because we're very black and white. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I mean, Mm-hmm. trying to get over there. Mm-hmm. How far do you go? And, what the, mm-hmm. you know, what's mm-hmm. the and this is, I mean, this is, these are the types of conversations, like how we engage with um, like the homosexual community as a church. Because this is something that our young adults are dealing with. They're working, it's their friends, their roommates, their co-workers. And sometimes as we need to just sit around it with intergenerational groups and talk about it. Because there's not easy answers. And there's not easy solutions. And so we need, the part of the problem is the church is not talking about it. We're shutting down the curriculums. We're shutting down the discussions. And often even older generations are like, I don't know how to talk about this under the new <coughs> cultural mindsets. So we need to be having these conversations and asking and answering the questions and allowing the Holy Spirit to show us how to engage with some of these issues effectively. That's a great point. Other questions, comments? Yeah. Um, would you be able just to tell the age groups for each? And you had talked a lot about the Gen Xers. So yep. what is the age groups for the Gen Xers, and really? Yep, so millennials right now are 19 to 33. Um, Xers are 34 to 49. Um, and boomers are 50 to roughly 69, 70. Forty-year-olds would be uh, Xers. Mm-hmm. Yes. Mm. Hmm. Yeah. So Gen uh, Gen Z or digital natives are a couple of the words. Um, are the younger generation, so eighteen and younger, uh, and they are very, they are different. They have some similarities because of technology and whatnot, but they are different in some ways. I would say that it looks like they're a little bit more responsible in some ways um, because they did not grow up in a time of affluence, okay? They've grown up kind of post-recession. So they have a better understanding of working hard for things. My parents didn't have a job. We didn't get as many things handed to us. A lot of them are working jobs, whereas millennials didn't necessarily do that as much in high school because parents want them to be in programs and such. So there are some changes. But um, technology-wise, many of them are planning on being entrepreneurs and running their own business and not working for anybody Okay, because they've also watched how corporations and churches have treated their employees. Um, And technology with like social media and such... I believe that um, a lot of relational skills are going to be even less because what's happening is you have things like Snapchat, Whisper, Secret, where there's a lot less accountability. At least with Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, there was accountability. The cyberbullying and such that's occurring, there are no consequences for in relationships. So how relational? I, I mean, I think millennials probably are going to be doing a lot better job with communication, relationships, community, collaboration, respect. They have those values. I don't know that Gen Z has them as strongly.